The Craig Folly Show on Deadline Detroit is made possible in part by Mad Dog Professional Services. Mad Dog Professional Services focuses on putting their clients on the leading edge of technology faster than thought possible to capture new revenue streams. That's Mad Dog Professional Services. Hey everybody, happy Monday. Welcome to the Craig Folly Show on Deadline Detroit. Glad to have you with me today and hopefully, hopefully you're not flying through the air because that wind was really strong yesterday. Tough walking against that. I was outside for a little bit. Man, was it blowing. Stuff blowing all over the place and um, wow, glad we survived it. Hopefully everything's okay. Hopefully you have power Uh, and hopefully again, you are firmly rooted on the ground today. But that wind lasted a little bit longer than I think anybody expected it to and it was a lot stronger. 61 mile an hour gusts recorded at both city and metro airport yesterday and it certainly looked every bit like it was 61 miles an hour blowing out there at times yesterday afternoon so hopefully everything's all right anyway coming up on today's program we've got a lot to talk about republicans held their convention over the weekend naming a new party chair for the state laura cox former state representative of course is now going to be the state gop chair we'll talk a little bit about the what is going on there we'll talk a little bit about what they suggest is going to be their number one priority as we ramp up for the 2020 campaign. So we'll get into that today. Also, closing arguments were made on Friday in the anti-gerrymandering case here that was brought by the League of Women Voters in Michigan. We'll talk a bit about the strategy there, what the arguments were, and what the next steps are there. And lastly, if you watched the Oscars last night, you may have seen Peter Farrelly give a strange shout-out to Shinola, suggesting it is saving the city. And I've got some thoughts on this very sort of complicated relationship that Shinola has with some people in the city of Detroit. And what I think about that. You may disagree with me, and that's just fine. That's what it's all about. Having conversations and actually listening to each other and disagreeing with each other. That's okay. You can do it without being disagreeable. And if you've got comments, send them to me at thecraigfollyshow at gmail.com. Again, that's thecraigfollyshow at gmail.com. Stay with us. The Craig Folly Show on Deadline Detroit is next. Hey, everybody. Happy Monday. Welcome to the Craig Folly Show on Deadline Detroit. Glad to have you with me today. Well, on Friday, arguments wound up in the case, the Michigan gerrymandering case that we've been following pretty closely here. And uh, basically, it's now in the hands of three judges. Two of the judges were appointed by Democrats, one appointed by a Republican in federal court. And of course, if it indeed uh, gets decided and it decides to be an appeal, it likely will go straight to the Supreme Court, which is already hearing two cases, one based in North Carolina, one based in Maryland, one a Democratic gerrymandering case, which was, of course, in Maryland, and the other a Republican gerrymandering case in North Carolina. Michigan now adding its case into this whole mix about whether or not these districts were unconstitutionally gerrymandered. So basically what happened is this. We didn't get a whole lot of new detail in the arguments uh, over the last couple of weeks. There were no new emails that surfaced. We've seen all of the emails that were written by the people that were involved in the process. A lot of the emails that uh, the League of Women Voters who brought the suit argued showed partisan intent in terms of drawing the lines. They were drawing the lines, according to the League of Women Voters, to benefit Republicans and not to benefit the voters in the state. That is basically the nexus of the argument. So so what I want to do is sort of go over the arguments that both sides are making here. And I think this is important here as we wait for a decision which likely could take weeks or potentially even months. Now, the Republicans countered with the League of Women Voters. Uh, They basically said that these emails didn't really have anything to do with the process, that these were people commenting on some of the lines that were being drawn and that wasn't really germane to the conversation. 
They also say there's nothing illegal about consulting incumbents about the maps and that letting them know about how the district's going to be drawn is not something that's a violation of the law. They also complained that the plaintiffs waited almost seven years to file the suit, that if they had been so endangered at that point in time, they should have brought the suit a long time ago. So here's a quote that I got from Bridge, Michigan today from the case. This is uh, uh, attorneys for the Republican members of the Michigan Senate who are arguing this case. They said, while plaintiffs attempt to paint a picture of pure political gerrymandering, such characterizations fall in the face of the facts here. Map drawers only considered political data as a secondary consideration after the legal criteria were satisfied to ensure that the maps could garner enough votes in the Senate to be enacted. Now, that's an interesting thing. Map drawers only considered political data as a secondary consideration after <laughs> after they met the law, basically. They had to make sure that these things were going to pass the legislature. So, of course, they want to make sure that the people who are going to be voting on this are happy with the lines. So that's an interesting point of view. Now, here's what else they had to say about this. It said, rather than showing individualized harm, plaintiffs' experts measured statewide impacts of gerrymandering using flawed algorithms, no less, and individual witnesses could not articulate a single way in which the boundaries of individual districts have burdened their votes, political speech, or association. Now, that's the argument being made by the Republicans in defense of this, saying, look, we didn't do anything illegal. The emails don't show illegal behavior. And frankly, we had to make sure that these lines were going to pass. So, of course, we're going to draw them in a way that is going to satisfy the people who are going to be voting on these lines, which is indeed the politicians who are going to be impacted by this, which is why which is why so many people, I think, voted for this new commission that will draw the lines. They want to take those people who are directly impacted by this out of the equation. Now, the question is whether or not we have to do this a couple of years earlier than we were expecting to as a result of the election results in November. Now, Democrats, Democrats argued in court that these lines illegally dilute voters' rights. And so basically what they're suggesting is that they packed Democrats. There's something called packing and cracking here. That what you try to do is pack as many Democratic voters to guarantee them a certain number of seats under the Voting Rights Act and to make sure that there is the minority representation that the Voting Rights Act uh, basically tries to enshrine into the law. You pack as many of the Democrats into those districts or the opposition party, for instance. In the case of Maryland, it would be the Republicans that they pack into certain districts. And then crack the Democratic voters on the other side, which means split those votes so that basically you're going to have a guaranteed Republican majority in some districts. Packing and cracking is a classic gerrymandering technique, and it's been done by the victorious party in many, many states for as long as we can go back in this country. Now, again, the Democrats' case relied a lot on these emails uh, that showed political intent in drawing these lines and making sure that people like Dave Camp, who was a congressman from Midland at the time, would be happy with his seats back in 2010 and would be excited that uh, that was there. Now you have Jeff Timmer, a guy who, this is one of the emails that they, that they introduced as evidence in this case. A guy named Jeff Timmer, who's a Republican map maker, one of the people who worked on this, said, quote, it's hard to envision a Dem winning this seat even in a year like 2008. He wrote this in an email to former Representative Thad McCotter, whose seat they were talking about. Now, the Democrats also suggest that the lines are drawn unfairly based on this notion, that since 2011, Republicans get about half of all the votes for state House and Senate seats in the state, but still control both chambers by overwhelming margins. That despite a 50-50 split between Democrats and Republicans in the vote, the Republicans should not have as much a majority as they do in the state House and the state Senate. That's the argument that they made. And that does lend you to wonder, how fairly were these lines drawn? Did they indeed pack and crack these districts, as we're talking about? If it's a 50-50 split, you'd think there would be a closer split in the legislature. Not so. 
because if the lines are drawn the right way and you dilute the power of one party, increase the power of the others based on the way the lines are drawn, then you can do that. You can guarantee an outcome uh, that is going to be favorable to your party. That's the way the system has worked for a long time. To the victors belong the spoils. Now, Jocelyn Benson's attorneys argued that this has created all sorts of problems for Democrats as a result in terms of recruiting candidates to run for office in these districts. Knowing that they're going to lose, recruiting candidates is very, very difficult. Nobody wants to automatically get into a race to be a sacrificial lamb unless you're doing it as a favor to somebody else. But that is not something people like. Nobody likes being put in that position where you know you're going to lose. That no matter how competitive you are and no matter how good a campaign you run, the numbers are stacked against you before you get in. I can understand why nobody wants to participate in that. And it does make it difficult to recruit candidates for races like that. And it's not just in those seats that benefit Republicans. When you stack a bunch of voters, cram them into one district, well, guess what? Then even the party in power, for instance, the Republicans, they know that there are certain districts that they will never have a chance in because of the way the lines are drawn. So they have trouble recruiting candidates. It's not a fair system the way that it's set up right now, in my opinion. You know, you may disagree and this is the way we've always done things, and, and again, to the victors belong the spoils. But the idea was never to create a situation in which a permanent majority could be created, or something close to it, or a decade-long majority. That's not the purpose of doing this. The purpose of doing this is to make sure that people get representation. And frankly, I would like to see more competition in every district. I would like to see more candidates throwing their hat into the ring, more candidates thinking they might actually have a legitimate chance so we get a better a better idea of the issues that matter in these districts. Because if you know that there's no chance that your party is going to win, well, then the party can move farther to the edges and away from the middle and away from consensus because they know they don't have to. If all you've got to do is sit there and and throw some red meat to your base on either side, knowing that you've then, as long as you get through the primary, you're going to win that seat, that's not good for voters. That does not give them a real choice. That gives the party extremists and the party loyalists, an opportunity to get behind somebody they like. But for the rest of the people in that district, they're not going to be hearing about the issues that might matter to them. And it makes for a less competitive race, a less interesting race. And frankly, I don't think it's good for democracy. Now we've got, again, a few months to wait. And what the remedy will be since this went to court, we don't know at this point in time. Now the federal judges, there's again a three-judge panel that is going to be looking at this. They're going to have the next few weeks, maybe a couple of months to make a decision on this one. They could. They could order new lines to be drawn for the 2020 elections, which would be two years earlier than we expected new lines based on what voters did in November. Now, the panel cleared it to proceed to trial. That was a two-to-one vote with a Republican nominee dissenting on that one to even send it to trial. So this three-judge panel is going to do it, and if it gets appealed, it likely will go straight to the Supreme Court. Now, again, the U.S. Supreme Court is already getting ready to decide on a couple of things, Maryland and North Carolina. A decision on those is due in June. Now, the Michigan case is expected to be decided before then, and we'll see what happens. Is that something that's going to factor into the U.S. Supreme Court's decisions in those other states? We don't know. So now we wait. Now we wait. And there was an original settlement that just would have redrawn some of the House lines, not the Senate, not the congressional lines. And depending on how these judges rule, Republicans could find themselves in an interesting position in that if they redraw all of the lines, the congressional lines, the state House and the state Senate, because of how these judges rule. And then depending on what the Supreme Court does in these other cases, we may have completely new lines in 2020, which could threaten Republican majorities in the state Senate, which would have been left alone had they settled, and Congress, which would have been left alone had they settled. If there are new lines in 2020, they'll have to be drawn differently than these current ones. And none of these factors, none of these factors about stacking and cracking, 
will be allowed to be used. It's going to have to be a different process. It will be independent. And of course, the legislature is going to have to vote on these districts, but they're not going to have a whole lot of time and they're not going to have a whole lot of choices. They may get two or three options to look at. But had they settled this, we could have had a few state house seats in 2020 that may have been up for grabs by refusing to settle and voting against the settlement. Well, guess what? Now everything's up in the air. So we wait. This is the Craig Folly Show on Deadline Detroit. The Craig Folly Show is made possible in part by Deadline Detroit. One-stop shopping for all your news. Also, home to Deadline Detroit TV, which includes The Zip, a weekly wrap-up of the week's news with some humor, and The Trip, wise relationship advice with hosts Megan Slattery and Tracy Evans. Deadline Detroit, one-stop shopping for all your news. Hey, thanks for listening to The Craig Show. Always pleased to have you here, The Craig Folly Show on Deadline Detroit. Thank you very, very much. Hopefully you didn't blow away over the weekend. Wow, that was ridiculous, by the way. Unbelievable that wind that was coming through here. It's kind of funny. My son was on a train back to Kalamazoo yesterday, and the train was delayed because a billboard had blown onto the tracks, which is pretty unusual. You don't see that happening very often, but apparently he got home okay. Anyway, uh, one thing that did happen over the weekend, and I think is important to mention, is that the Republicans, their convention to pick a new leader, Laura Cox, former state legislator, wife of Mike Cox, former attorney general, was elected to be the state Republican Party chair. Now, Ron Weiser stepped down and at the, at the convention over the weekend announced that he is suffering from cancer. It sounds like it's a difficult diagnosis for him, and uh, we wish him and his family the best. And if you talk to Republicans, uh, they are, re- are very appreciative of the job that he has done in his time at the party, keeping, keeping control of the legislature, uh, despite what was happening nationwide with Democrats in this last election cycle, delivering Michigan for Donald Trump a couple of years ago, which was crucial to him finding a path to victory at a time when nobody could see that path of victory for him coming through these Midwest states. But, you know, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, big shocks. Delivering for Michigan, delivering Michigan for Trump was a big, big deal. And it was only about 10,000 votes, obviously. It was very, very close, but it still was a huge, huge deal. And... Don't think the Republicans don't know it. Laura Cox, in giving her acceptance speech for this new position, basically said Michigan is going to be at the center of the 2020 election campaign. We'll get a lot more attention than we got last time around. And don't think for a second that Donald Trump won't be through here several times as he starts his re-election campaign. Because his path to victory needs Michigan. He needs to have it. There's going to be a lot of money spent here. There's going to be a lot of outreach, a lot of grassroots effort on the part of the Republicans. Laura Cox is suggesting that her job, her number one job, is to make sure that he carries Michigan again and that they hold off any Democratic push to retake the state House, the state Senate, and the congressional delegation here in Michigan. Now, she got this position in part because she did have support from Trump's 2020 campaign manager, uh, Brad Parscale, uh, which is a big deal. That's a huge deal to get that. But also a number of other uh, Republican legislators came to her case, made an argument for her to be the next GOP party chair. Bill Heisinger, a Republican from Zeeland, John Molinar from Midland, and Tim Wahlberg from Tipton all came out and supported her candidacy to take this position. Now, again, she was in the State House of Representatives from 2015 to 2019. She's a former ICE agent. And again, she's married to Mike Cox, who's the former state attorney general. One of the things she says she's going to do is expand the GOP's digital presence, trying to go after younger voters, which is going to be critical because younger voters are starting to come out in larger numbers. 
and they voted overwhelmingly for Democrats in the last election. So what are they going to do to be able to do that? They, that's, Republicans have been talking about this for a long time, trying to get younger, trying to get more diversity in the ranks. Doing it has been difficult. But this party's top priority, and Laura Cox said this flat out, the top priority is re-electing President Trump. And you can bet that there will be money flowing to Michigan. There will be money flowing to make sure that that's a reality. So anybody that sits there and thinks this is going to be a cakewalk for whoever the Democratic nominee is in Michigan needs to get woken up. There will be plenty of cash. There will be plenty of momentum. There will be plenty of action on the part of the Republicans to keep Michigan red. Now, whether or not that actually happens remains to be seen. But they're going to try. They're not going to just give up on it. But don't for a second think that this is going to be something that will be easy for the Republicans. There's the possibility of new lines that will make holding the congressional delegation, the state House and the state Senate more difficult if these lines are drawn in a more fair and equitable manner than they currently are. That's going to be some headwind. Depending on what comes in the Mueller report, what comes from the investigations into President Trump that are happening at a number of different levels is going to have an impact on what happens here. So they have a tall order. And it's going to be difficult to maintain it. I mean, you know, after the first term, you know, we'll see what happens. President Trump, there's a lot of things that can happen between now and November of 2020. And a lot of that is going to hinge on who his opposition is. Who are the Democrats actually going to put up to take him on? But just know that you have a bit of an advantage when you have an incumbent president without any real opposition at this point in time. I mean, Bill Weld is a possibility and that could be something that causes some problems for President Trump if he gets a, a real challenge from his own party in running for re-election. Wouldn't be the first time it happened, but it's always better when you don't have that. And depending on what happens in the next few weeks, we very well could have some serious opposition to Donald Trump that actually starts to emerge. And that's going to make their job that much more complicated. But if somehow, if somehow he survives this, and we have an incumbent Donald Trump running in Michigan, I have a feeling he's going to be tough to beat. And it certainly seems as if their job... Number one, based on what everybody at that convention said over the weekend, is to make sure that this man is reelected president of the United States. So anybody that thinks this is going to be easy for the Democrats or this is going to be a cakewalk, no. Republicans are there waiting to punch you in the mouth. The question is whether or not the Democrats will actually have the candidate to punch back. We'll be right back. This is The Craig Folly Show on Deadline Detroit. Hey, this is The Craig Show on Deadline Detroit. Thanks very much for being with me on this Monday. And I want to wrap up today's program talking a little bit about a, a controversy that sort of sprang up during the Oscars last night. Peter Farrelly, of course, was accepting his uh, Academy Award last night, the longtime writer and, uh, and producer and director of films, won his Academy Award last night. And in his acceptance speech, he gave an unexpected shout-out to Shinola, in which he said, Support Shinola, they're saving Detroit. And of course, Shinola is one of those subjects that gets people in the city of Detroit into one of two camps. You either think that they are a great company doing wonderful things here in the city of Detroit, or you think that they are basically a company that took advantage of the city's gritty image and used it as a marketing ploy to sell watches that are not as well made as they are in terms of price. I don't understand why people get so exercised about this. It is hardly the first time that a company has tried to take advantage of a geographic location uh, to burnish their image in some capacity. 
I look at Shinola, and yes, I don't necessarily buy this savior of the city narrative uh, that many have tried to attach to it, including Mr. Farrelly last night during the Oscars. They are one of a number of companies that have made significant investments in both Midtown and downtown Detroit. They are employing about 400 people within the city, many of them in a manufacturing capacity, which is not a bad thing. And of course, the new hotel, which just opened up, is, is employing a lot of people as well, and frankly has rejuvenated some blocks of downtown Detroit that had not seen investment in decades. Now, I understand some of the controversy that surrounds this company, but I've never really understood why we in Detroit are so quick to demonize those uh, that are indeed taking advantage of something to make the city a little bit better. You may not agree with Shinola, you may not agree with their marketing efforts, but to root against them or to root for their failure seems counterproductive. I'm not one to sit there and say that they were right in their approach to their marketing and their approach to sort of claiming Detroit as their own. Was it opportunistic? Entirely possible. But last I checked, we still live in a capitalist society. The fact is marketing matters. Advertising matters. And trying to gain some sort of sense of authenticity by being attached to Detroit, well, we should frankly be a little bit thankful that somebody wanted to do that because it wasn't that long ago that everybody had given this place up for dead and wanted nothing to do with this community. Now, those of you longing for the good old days in Detroit, well, I'm not sure what good old days you're longing for at this point in time. I've been here a long time. I've seen decline in this community, and I know that there's still a ton of work that needs to be done, especially in the neighborhoods in the city of Detroit. Nobody is denying that, and nobody, nobody in their right mind is suggesting that Shinola is going to fix this or is claiming that they are fixing everything for everybody in the city of Detroit. They just aren't. Are they making a difference? I think they are. And maybe it's not your cup of tea. I understand that, and I understand the criticism, and that's fine. You may disagree with me on this point. But the fact that we are dogging somebody that is investing as heavily as they are in the city of Detroit is something I don't necessarily get. I've been reading the criticism about this company for years. But last I checked, anybody that's willing to move here and employ 400 people at least is not a bad thing. We need more of them. This is one piece of a much larger puzzle. But I'm reading some of the tweets about this suggesting that somehow Shinola is responsible for tax increases that made people lose their homes. That's just not true. It's not even close to being true. Any of the buildings that they're occupying were not occupied before. They haven't forced anybody out. They've employed people. And yes, did they use Detroit to their advantage in marketing? Of course they did. And I understand some of that bitterness here, but this, this notion that somehow Shinola is responsible for the bougieing up of Detroit is nonsense. If you don't like their watches, don't buy them. That's fine. Don't shop at their stores. Don't stay at that hotel. There are plenty of other people that want to do this. I'm just trying to understand why we don't like this company as much as we don't like them. And when I say we, I don't mean all of us, but certainly this company's gotten a lot of criticism. Not just here, but in New York and places like that as well. But last I checked, they are employing people, they are paying taxes, they are redeveloping buildings, and they are growing. I don't see why that's a bad thing for the city. I just don't. The more people that want to move in here, great. But to somehow suggest that a company like Shinola is responsible for foreclosures is just not accurate. And it's not fair. Did Mr. Farrelly overstate Shinola's role in the resurgence of Detroit? Yes, I would suggest that he did. And I don't know what kind of weird connection he has to this, co to this company, but for some reason, he decided to give a shout-out last night to Shinola. Shinola wasn't expecting it. They put out a statement today suggesting that they are grateful for the shout-out, but also acknowledging that Detroit is what allowed them to become the company that they are, and they won't forget that. You don't have to like Shinola. You don't have to like their products. You might not even like the way that they present themselves. That's fine. But it is tough to disagree with the fact that they have created jobs in this community. And it didn't have to be here. It could have been anywhere. They chose to do it here. They chose to take advantage of whatever sort of gritty cachet Detroit had at the time. And they did it well. 
Bill Clinton bought 10 Shinola watches. Barack Obama, I believe, has a Shinola watch. A number of other people. For some reason, it stuck, and it seemed to work. So I don't get the anger. I don't get the frustration. I guarantee you the people who are working in that company are not upset that they have a job right now. And why couldn't Shinola have been? Could have been somewhere like Indianapolis, or Chicago, or St. Louis. They chose Detroit. That's not a bad thing. Sometimes, progress is a good thing. Lord knows we saw regress for a long, long time. I, for one, got tired of that. And I'm sorry. There needs to be improvements in this community. There needs to be investment in this community. There needs to be a vibrant downtown, a strong midtown. Yes, the neighborhoods need to see some of that investment too, and it's starting to move in that direction. It doesn't mean it's perfect by any stretch. There's a long, long way to go. It took us 60 years to get where we are in this community. It's going to take us a while to dig out. But the one thing that we seem to love doing here is tearing down the people that are actually doing something because it doesn't prescribe to, to, I don't know what. I mean, you can make arguments about cultural appropriation, whatever you want to make. The fact is they're investing and they're having some success. And I look at that three, four buildings that are now turned into that new Shinola Hotel, which basically were nothing but vacant buildings before. And I see the amount of money that's gone into that and the redevelopment that's taking place in that neighborhood. I cannot complain about that. Because we remember what it was like when you're sitting at 1515 Broadway and there was a sign that says free cup of coffee for the person who purchases the Wurlitzer building. Is it a bad thing that the Siren Hotel is in there now instead of a vacant building? Is it a bad thing that the Metropolitan has been redone? Is it a bad thing that the Shinola Hotel has just opened up in downtown Detroit with new restaurants, retail opportunities, jobs? You can argue about tax credits. You can argue about all those things. I understand that. And that's something we will be talking about. But why are we so quick to tear down people that want to invest in our community? I don't understand it. I'm not sure I ever fully will. I've seen all the arguments and I can see the criticisms and I can see why people might feel that way. It doesn't mean I agree with it and it doesn't mean I necessarily understand why it's a bad thing that somebody wants to spend money in this community and invest in it. I get the -the over-the-top stuff, and I understand this white savior narrative that's going on here. I've heard this time and time again. But at this point in time, especially in the city of Detroit, we have to find a way to make this place as welcoming as possible without giving away the store, and of course hold these companies accountable if they do make promises about what it is they're going to do when it comes to community engagement and community development and community benefits. I agree with all of those things, but we are so quick to demonize those people that are not quote-unquote authentic that we might, in fact, be driving people away. And last I checked, we have room for a lot more people in this community, and we need a lot more people. We need a lot more revenue, a lot more investment. If we are going to do things like turn around the schools, rebuild property values, rebuild the tax base, rebuild the black middle class in this community, that takes jobs and it takes investment. And I'm not saying we give away the store to companies like Shinola, But we certainly should not be shaming them either. So far, they've handled the criticism and they've grown. Hopefully, they continue to do so and continue to employ hundreds of Detroiters, hundreds of people in the metro area. That's not a bad thing. I hope they can continue it. This has been the Craig Folly Show on Deadline Detroit. Thanks so much for listening to me on this Monday. If you want to get back in touch with me, tell me why I'm wrong. Please do. Send me an email to thecraigfollyshow at gmail.com. Don't forget, you can always find me on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram. Anywhere you want to leave comments about things that I'm talking about, feel free to do so. I can handle it. Tell me why I'm screwed up on this whole Shinola thing. I don't have a problem with that. I'd love to hear your point of view. We'll talk again tomorrow. Thanks for listening today. We'll see you soon. The Craig Folly Show on Deadline Detroit is made possible in part by Mad Dog Professional Services. 
Mad Dog Professional Services focuses on putting their clients on the leading edge of technology faster than thought possible to capture new revenue streams. That's Mad Dog Professional Services. 